Welcome to episode number 15 on the My Story Podcast. The My Story Podcast features interviews with leaders, influencers, and entrepreneurs who tell us their story and the life lessons they've learned along the way. Hi, my name's Conrad Weaver, and I'm the host for the show. I'm a filmmaker, entrepreneur, storyteller, and today I'm honored to feature my interview with my good friend and mentor, Richard Pollack. Richard is an award-winning journalist, investigative reporter, and television producer who spent years covering Washington, D.C. politics and news for Good Morning America, Fox News, The Washington Examiner, and a number of other news organizations. We'll hear the story of the change in his political point of view from being a left-wing anti-war activist in the 70s to becoming a conservative-minded reporter who believes in the America we once knew and loved. Richard's Jewish faith and upbringing helped shape his view of America and continues to guide the type of stories he investigates and writes about. The interview is fascinating, and I know you'll love the stories he tells. Some of them are quite poignant. Plus, at the end of the interview, Richard gives us a prediction of who will win the 2020 presidential election. So you need to stick around for his interesting take on that. Hey, if you enjoy listening to these podcasts, first of all, thank you for joining us. If you enjoy these, then please share it with your friends and family. I really would love you just to share it with everyone you know and encourage them to listen as well. And if you haven't already left a review, go over to Apple Podcast and leave me a review. Let me know what you think, what you like, what you don't like. I really do want to know what you're thinking when you listen to these podcasts. So if you could do that, I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. So thanks for joining me today. And here's my conversation with Richard Pollack. So Richard, welcome to the My Story podcast. I'm, Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. Richard, you and I go back a few years. We do. And I was, I have to say to start out, I was thinking about this today and I was thinking, you know, a lot of the things that I do in video production, I really look back to my early experience with you and I look at you as a real mentor in my professional experience in video production. Well, that's very impressive. I'm very impressed. You you are in your own right now, I think, a recognized uh, national producer of really great topics, usually topics that are sort of underappreciated. Uh, I know that you work in the whole issue of the Farm Belt and America's Farmers was just sort of right. a, a very pioneering kind of effort. So I'm just very happy to be associated with you and of your success uh, that you've had uh, professionally. Well, thank you. And I could, you know, I, I think one of the things that I really learned from you in one of the early times that we were working together is is just your interview skills and how you performed an interview with someone, you know, of someone of importance. And I learned a lot from that time. And so I want to say thank you. Thank you for uh, hiring me, for taking me under your wing, so to speak, and teaching me some things that uh, I didn't really know otherwise. Well, I think storytelling is very powerful. It's something that you do now, for sure. But storytelling is not just sort of like, a, it doesn't come natural to a lot of people. It's how we take sort of abstract issues like policy or a national crisis, and we actually put it in terms that average people, they may be very informed and very smart, but that average people who are not associated with this issue can bond with it. They can understand either the advocates for a point of view or people who struggle about issues. And I think that storytelling is really an unappreciated type of um, uh, skill that uh, I've seen that you've developed. And I think that's a big part of your success. You know, it's been a really fun journey for me, and I'm still in the middle of the journey and still learning. I learn, you know, something new every day, it seems. And in storytelling, I've really learned to appreciate that art of storytelling, and I've gotten better over the years, thankfully. And I think my films can speak to that. But, you know, I want to really talk about you and, and where you have come from. And, and so I want to learn a little bit about Richard Pollock. Where did you get your start? Where, do you, where were you born? And where, 
And where did you come from? Well, I was um, uh, the firstborn of three children. Uh, I was born in Newark, New Jersey to uh, parents who were Jewish. I grew up in a Jewish household. It wasn't that orthodox at all, but uh, there was. we were living at the time in a neighborhood which was appropriately called uh, a Jewish neighborhood because we would walk out of the apartment building and we would find um, that there would be a kosher butcher, uh, there would be a kosher baked goods, there would be, um, and I, as a little child, even one or two when I was learning words, I learned the, the word kosher that was in neon lights in front of every shop that had um, some sort of Jewish connection. And I didn't even understand that nobody else had that, by the way. Mm. I just thought this was like something that was uh, interesting. And it, what was also interesting is we lived in a neighborhood in which supermarkets had not yet been, had not had yet come to this part of Newark, New Jersey, which is a very big metropolitan area. Mm. And so I would go with my mother from one little store to another, probably the way that they did it for most of, uh, you know, life going to the marketplace, uh, wherever it might have been in Europe or Africa, Asia, wherever it might be. And I loved it. I, you know, I learned a lot about, um, about food, but also about people and about community. And that was really very powerful to me. And then we moved to a nearby town in which, um, as it turns out, my grandparents were three blocks away. My uncle and aunt were two blocks away. A number of other uncles and aunts were within three or four blocks. And I learned something else that I think we've lost in suburbia. And that is the connection of growing up in a safe place with safe Mm. adults, with safe parents and relatives. And, um, I, I, I was put on the, the public bus by my mother every morning to go to elementary school. This was not a school bus. It was a public bus. Oh, wow. We had to pay the money to the, uh, to, to the driver. He, he knew me, of course, and there were other little kids on there. You know, I'm now we're talking like uh, I'm going to kindergarten. I'm like talking about six mm-hmm. years old. And they would drop me off and, uh, and uh, at the elementary school. And um, – I was born in 1951, uh, which it seems like it's still sort of like a you know modern period. But for some reason, um, all of these bonded me. It drowned me. It made me yeah. it made me grounded by feeling like I was part of a community and relatives were part and surrounding me. Mm-hmm. And um, and so the, a lot of the anxiety like today's um uh generation has about you know uh, different types of offenses that might trigger some sort of like subliminal fear and anxiety i had none of that mm-hmm. i lived in a very happy community and both communities well particularly the second community in orange was very integrated this uh, i'd say that about almost half of the student body in orange uh was african-american or hispanic mm-hmm. And so do you I, think that do you think that this is like you, you had a family around you, you had uncles down the street, you had cousins nearby. Do you think that's more traditional, typical Jewish communities or is that was that just the way it was back in that I, time period? I think it was the way it was back because, you know, nearby there were Italian neighborhoods and there were Irish neighborhoods and the Irish, the Italians and the Jewish kids all used to like fight with each other. And, uh, you know, they, they, so I think this was really sort of like it all happened in different places at different times. But um, yes, America was still a mental a melting pot, but it was also one in which you had safety in numbers and you weren't fearful. Uh, I was, and when we moved to Plainfield, New Jersey, I mean, I could go, this was a suburb now and I could drive, my, drive, I could ride my bicycle anywhere I wanted to go at any time. And my parents didn't have to know where I was. I didn't have to go and report to people. Uh, there were no off limits. We had like a, a wooded area in which all us little boys would play guns, you know, war and all that kind of stuff. And it was a very, up through the early 1960s, America was a very safe place for a lot of people. Now, of course, there were probably a lot of people who wasn't safe, including Jews, I might add. You know, there was great discrimination in housing. Jews could not move sure. houses in certain neighborhoods. They couldn't go to certain colleges. The Ivy League schools had quotas, very strict, low quotas on the number of uh, Jewish students they would accept. So I'm not saying it was all hunky-dory. There were, there were real challenges. My, As it turns out, my 
my father-in-law uh, made a business out of selling commercial insurance to Jewish businesses because the big insurance companies refused to underwrite these comp- these small oh, wow. businesses. And so he became wealthy because he was able to provide insurance that the big insurance companies, mm-hmm. it was all quiet, never said. But, you know, we didn't demonstrate in the streets or anything of that sort. What we did right. is we were taught to learn um, about education and and and. and be serious at school and uplift ourselves so that we were the best that we could be. And really, um, a lot of Jews became very successful in all sorts of realms of American society just by their own grit and their effort. And, you know, to a certain extent, this is where I feel like we're in like a grievance society today. We're, we're just complaining about, I don't have this right and this right. Well, you know, there were a lot of rights Jews in the 1950s, 1960s didn't have either. And what we did is we worked to go and get the laws changed, but also we worked very hard to fit into American society and add to American society. And that kind of issue that we were Americans and we were here to go and contribute to our society was a very deep felt set of, um, of uh, values that I learned. And um, well, those values are really missing today in, in a lot of ways. They're, they're gone. I mean, those values are really gone. Although I have to tell you, if you ever meet a, a, a new immigrant in the United States, whether they're uh, working in a kitchen or they're uh, driving a taxi cab, Many of them say they come here because there is hard, there is opportunity that they do not have in their home countries, and that this opportunity is only based on hard work. In other words, it's not sure. who you, what religion you have, or what what ethnic background you have. They get it that if they work hard as a as a uh, a, a taxi driver, they will get up and up and up into the world and maybe they'll become professional at some point. A lot of them have college degrees and came mm-hmm. here and worked doing menial work, but they hope to get into the area of, uh, of the world that, that interests them. Look at the Asian communities, how well they integrated and how they excelled in this society. I think that the Jewish and the Asian communities really had something very similar of stressing education and learning and our background. Anyway, that was these were all very important um, values that I do think are really missing today. There's no question. Boy, it sounds like that would be a great documentary. <laughs> I think that, maybe, you know, maybe it's we really, could work together on that, right? Yeah, maybe, maybe it's, you know, the thing is that there were, um, you know, there, there were Cambodians and Laotians and Vietnamese that came after the, uh, the, the end of the Vietnam War and the communists were expelling all these people and putting them into concentration camps, that which they called education camps. Uh, there was an earlier uh, group of Koreans and, and Chinese that came, but there also were, um, as I said, there, you know, in earlier in the, in, in the uh, American cent- 20th century, we had Irish and we had uh, Germans and we had Jews and all sorts of people. You know, one of the things that's very interesting about our uh, about our country is that uh, Philadelphia was founded by Quakers, but Quakers were pacifists and they didn't want to fight. And in order to go and keep themselves secure, they needed to be able to fight against the Indians who would be attacking, Mm -hmm. swarming down on their little colonies and little settlements. So they brought the Germans from Germany over to Philadelphia, and they, they, they also were from northern Germany, which were a lot of coal mines, and they began working in the coal mines. But the Germans actually created um, – they were not pacifists, and they created little armies to protect the Quakers. And that area of, of Philadelphia today is still called Germantown. Wow. It gives you an idea of just you know what a mixing bowl we've been, but right. all of us – have understood our American identity. They didn't have a hyphenated identity. We weren't mm-hmm. Jewish Americans. We were just Americans. Mm-hmm. You know, you weren't Irish Americans. You really were Americans, and they wanted to be Americans. And they also wanted to do it legally. I mean, you know, the issue of illegal immigration is really a very, very recent development. It has right. not been with us for a long time. Right. So what got your interest in, in journalism? Well, of course, I loved Walter Cronkite. Uh, my family and I would watch the six o'clock or six thirty CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite, and we grew up with Uncle Walt, as some people called him. And I saw him, and I said, "I want to be like him. I want to be in the news business. This is great business." And so um, I became um, 
uh, uh, got involved in my high school newspaper. I became the first junior to actually be the editor-in-chief of my uh, high school newspaper. Usually wow. it was a senior who was there. So for two years, I was the editor-in-chief of my high school uh uh, newspaper, and then I, I got, came to AU, American University, Washington D.C. for college, and I got involved with the student newspaper. But I also got involved in some politics too, the anti-war movement, and that got me very involved. And it actually gave me a, it detoured me from journalism. But then I guess when I was about twenty-one, I had I was not doing any journalism uh, professionally at the time, and the woman that I was dating said, "What do you really want to do?" I mean, and I said, "What do you mean? What do I?" Really really want to do. You know, really, you know, tell me what you really want to do. And I said, well, I'd love to be a journalist. So she said, well, figure out a way to do it. So there was actually a freelance, independent freelance organization of freelance writers in Washington, D.C. And there was a subgroup of investigative reporters. And I joined the organization. I eventually became a member of the, the board of directors called Washington Independent Writers. And I started I got my. I, I came up with a story idea. I pitched it to a news organization, and I couldn't believe it. They said, "Okay, go write it." I went, huh. "That's it. Go write it." So <laughs> I began writing, and I wrote for the Village Voice for a while. I w- wrote for a number of other small publications. I g- actually broke a couple of very big stories uh, as an investigative reporter, and someone noticed me and it turned out that Ralph Nader was looking for an investigative reporter and he put me in touch with Nader and Nader hired me and I was there for six years. Hmm. Wow. Then you went on to work for ABC. Right. Well, actually I had one little detour. Um, a friend of mine who I knew who was a political activist had created a um, public relations company and he wanted to know if I wanted to be the um, head of his Washington office. It had, he had no Washington office. He was in New York. And I said, okay. And so I did that for six years. And that was also a detour because I really didn't want to be in PR pitching stores. I really wanted to be a reporter. Mm-hmm. So um, as it turns out, I created my own PR firm and left him. And then I sold that company to uh, a company called APCO, uh, which is very big today. I was there for about a year and I decided, not let's stop this PR stuff, go back mm-hmm. into journalism. And I decided that just like looking at Walter Cronkite, I wanted to be in television, mm-hmm. which was, a, I didn't have any television experience, but I just wanted to do it. And I'd done a lot of news conferences with a lot of uh, nationally known reporters who attended my news conferences. So I knew them personally. So I called up a friend of mine at CBS and he put me in touch with the bureau chief and they offered me a job at CBS radio. And I said, no. Now, at the time, that was really gutsy and, you know, sort of arrogant in a way. I mean, you know, CBS radio was not a small radio network. Sure. But I realized that that the gulf between radio and TV was enormous. If you started in radio, you never left radio. Right. You were kind of stuck in that that mode of uh, communication. It's very rare. You could jump, but it was very rare. So I actually turned down the, they called it the Tiffany Network. That's what CBS was known at the time. I turned them down and I got in touch with a guy named Jack McQuethy, who was then the State Department reporter for ABC. And I asked him if I could take him out to lunch, which I had never done. And I sit down with him. And after five minutes, he turns to me. So, so do you want to work at ABC? And I sort of laughed because that's what I was calling him for lunch. And I said, well, yeah, maybe. I don't know. You think I could do it? Is it possible? So he says, look, I'm going to call George Watson, the bureau chief, and I'm going to tell him that, you know, all the stuff that you've done. And in fact, Watson had attended two of my news conferences that I held in D.C., as it turns out. And so uh, it took three months to get that in that to get that interview, but finally it happened, mm-hmm. and I had my resume in my pocket. But apparently he knew me, and Jack McQuethy's recommendation also was very important. So about ten minutes into the conversation, he says, "How would you like to work at Good Morning America?" Oh wow! <laughs> Could you just imagine that you're just sitting there? Anybody in America listening to this right now would say, "Somebody says, how would you like to work at Good Morning America?" <laughs> I don't want to see your resume. Give me your references. You know, can you fill out this test? And I, and I said, well, yeah, I'd love to. (laughs) And, um, he says, well, there's a job opening for Washington producer here and Booker. And I think that you would do very well. Let me see. I'm going to send your, uh, send your name up. And, uh, he sent it to, uh, New York to a guy named Steve Friedman, 
Steve Lewis, I'm sorry, Steve Lewis, who was a senior producer of the show. And I actually had booked a number of guests with Steve in the past of in my PR days. Mm-hmm. And he knew exactly who I was. And he so on Monday, I met with George Watson. On Wednesday, I was in New York meeting not only Steve, but I met the executive producer, Jack mm-hmm. Riley. I met Joan London and I met uh, Charlie Gibson. And now I'm like totally psyched. Like, I want to be here. This is amazing. So they said they'd give me an answer by five o'clock on Friday. And I said, okay. And this is like a very good example for all people who are like trying to like, you know, get into, break into some form of a, of a field that they love. Anyway, five o'clock had come on Friday. I had not heard from them. And now I am really depressed. Hmm. On Monday, I didn't even know there was a job. Now I'm like really <laughs> depressed. So I called my best friend, a guy, and I said, uh, let's go to Georgetown. Let's uh, get drunk. I figured it out. I lost it. I tried, you know, I went for the gold ring. I didn't get it. Maybe there's another brass ring I'll get later on. Who knows? So I'm packing the car in on M Street. And I actually had, this was, there was such a thing as car phones at that time. And I had a phone in my car and I'm backing up on M Street, which is a very crowded street on Friday night at rush hour. And the phone rings and I notice the number is the ABC number. So I pick up the phone and uh, Pat, his um, press, his secretary said, have you heard anything? I said, no, I haven't heard anything. She goes, wait a minute, hold on. So my, the front of my car was sort of, I'm not holding on and I'm like completely oblivious that the front of my car in trying to parallel park is like stuck in the front of M Street and all these people are honking because I'm honking <laughs> them. And finally I go, oh, okay. And I, I, I pull it in and I'm waiting forever. And then he gets on the line and he goes, Richard. And it goes, yes. And he's talking like the kind of talk you want to let a person down. Oh, sure. Like, you know, you had, you didn't have enough experience, but you have the right spirit. You know, we invite you to, you know, apply, you know, some other times. Go, Richard. I go, yes. And he goes, um, uh, I guess uh, I may be the first to say to you, welcome to ABC News. <laughs> wow. Oh, <laughs> And he said, they're going to call you on Monday and they're going to uh, want some paperwork and they're probably going to want to fly you up and go and do, finalize all the paperwork. But um, uh, And we, you have to settle on uh, on the salary. I've already told them the range. They've agreed with that. I'm going, oh, my God. And so <laughs> I leave the car. My friend is waiting to expecting a very depressed Richard Pollock. And instead, here is this guy. I said, I got the job. <laughs> And so I now had, you're buying rounds for everybody, right? <laughs> exactly. And I and I I had that position for almost nine years, and I was wow. the Washington producer in charge of what Good Morning America would cover. But I also was the White House producer and the Pentagon producer, and I covered both uh, Presidents Reagan, George. Bush and Bill Clinton. And I also, uh, at the Pentagon, I covered a bunch of different wars. I covered the first Gulf War from Saudi Arabia and Bahrain. I went to uh, North Africa and to uh, the Middle East to cover a bunch of terrorist stuff. I was in Panama uh, covering an attempted coup d'etat against Noriega. I was in Nicaragua during an election where the Sandinistas were trying to go and uh, win the uh, election there. I was in Hong Kong for three months to prepare for a special, uh, Good Morning America special in Hong Kong itself. I went to a G7 summit uh, in Tokyo, uh, and then I covered all sorts of you know events in the United States, as, as long as as well as a number of inaugurations that I was in charge of from the Washington uh, point of view, mm-hmm. booking all the different guests that we would have on, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so um, I grew up, in, you know, in the center of Washington's news and uh, controversies and politics, mm-hmm. and it was just probably one of the best times of my life. What would you say was probably your favorite interview that you did during those years? Well, there were lots of interviews, but I'm going to tell you one story. It was when the Berlin Wall had come down. A lot of people remember that, and it was sure. four, four o'clock in the afternoon. And we have a show tomorrow. And of course, this is the big news. I mean, almost the, you know, three quarters of the show was probably going to be about this and not about cooking segments or fashion mm-hmm. segments or actors and actresses. We have nobody. Mm-hmm. So um, London is on and London gets says, just a second, they get off and they say, we have the mayor of Berlin. And they go, OK, great. We'll start with the mayor of Berlin. And then my phone rings 
And it's a State Department saying that the State Department Secretary of State, James Baker, would be willing to be on uh, on our show tomorrow. So I said, I get back on. I said, great. You know, so we say, OK, we're going to start with uh, with Baker. And then the phone rings again. And this guy says, Richard Pollack, please. And I'm saying to myself, I've heard this voice before. Where have I heard this voice before? And then I just say, President Ford? Hmm. Yes, how are you? I understand you'd like me to be on Good Morning America tomorrow. I said, yes, sir. He said, well, I'm very happy to be on your show tomorrow. What time would you like me? Hmm. Now, I'm like, oh, my God. (laughs) I got former president. But the other piece, which is really never really picked up, was what a down-to-earth human being Ford was, that he called himself. He didn't have a press secretary. Wow. He called himself. Mm. He told me that he was going to stay at this hotel, and he would tell them that we need a crew, and we need a room, and he, and he, like, he knew how to do all of this stuff. Sure. And he gave me the phone, his phone number and the phone number of uh, one aide. And he said, what time do you want me? And I just figured he's going to, we're going to, we should have to open it up because he actually said he'd been to the Berlin Wall many times with his wife, Betty. Hmm. And he's saying it to me in just like this wonderful conversational tone. And um, I said, thank you very much. I hung up and I came back and I said, President Ford has agreed to be on our show. So in the, in the course of 15 minutes, all of a sudden our show was like, uh, was was like taking shape. And and the thing is, you would say the first interview, well, this is the first arranging of interview that always, I've, I've always remembered that moment when I, I hear this voice and I'm trying to put it, you, we've all been in that situation where mm-hmm. there's somebody we've heard, we can't place it, and then the little light bulb goes up and I go, President Ford? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Wow. That was really just, great. Did um, you ever just wake up um, and say, wow, I get to do this? Yes, and they paid me for it too. <laughs> That's even better. The other other thing that I was very proud of is I was um, asked to uh, put together uh, Good Morning America's live 50th anniversary uh, coverage of D-Day, live live from Normandy, France. And they gave me three months to put this show together. So, of course, we just had the 75th anniversary. So you can figure how long it's been since I've been on Mm -hmm. on Good Morning America. But I got to meet all these principals. For those who are old enough to remember that there was a a trio of women who were singing during the war called the Andrews Sisters. Well, I interviewed one of the Andrews Sisters, Mm -hmm. surviving one Andrews Sister. I interviewed a general, a German Nazi general who was in charge of the Panzer tank unit closest to the D-Day Normandy area. And Mm -hmm. He explained on camera how he wired back to Berlin and kept on saying, you know, I think this is the main invasion. And they kept on saying to him over three days, no, it's not. Just stay put. It's going to be in another part of France, which was part of a whole disinformation campaign and psychological warfare campaign that the Allies had had, had done for over two years to go and convince them that Normandy was not the landing place. And I just and I interviewed all sorts of parachute people from the 101st Airborne and the 82nd Airborne who who dropped uh, on that night before. Uh, and I also interviewed in, uh, reporters um, who actually covered D-Day. And so it was really I'm a military historian as an avocation, as a hobby. And so the idea of like not only covering the D-Day and all of its wonders, but to actually sit down with 20, 30, 40 different people who actually were participants in the war was like, for me, it was like, it was like a little kid in a toy shop and yet they were paying me to do this too. So, you know. Wow, that must have been just amazing experience to hear firsthand from the people who were there. Oh, yes. I mean, this was, I mean, we did both on-air interviews, but we did also some, uh, you know, we talked after we were off camera about a variety of things. I will tell you one very, very poignant moment. Um, I was actually, my production area was on the, at the American Cemetery, and I was sitting next to David Brinkley, who, uh, he was coming live from the American Cemetery, and I was, I was uh, working the, the show from there, too. And before we went on the air, there was this family and this big guy, this big guy's walking and he's looking at different tombstones and then the whole family must be like 12, 15 people, his wife, his kids, his grandkids are all sort of following and he's looking and he's looking and, you know, I'm just sort of noticing that. And all of a sudden, not far from where we are, I see this big man fall to his knees and begin sobbing. Hmm. 
just sobbing and the family was paralyzed. Like, what do we do? Obviously he was the patriarch of the family. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. He was, and they were all there. And so after he composed himself, I went down to meet him and to talk to him. And I said, you know, tell me, why are you here? And he says, well, he says, uh, you know, I, I landed on this beach with my best friend and we were both 19 years old and he died on this beach. Wow. I never, I've had an entirely full life. Look at my family here. I have all these children. I have a wife. I have other family. I've I've had a a very nice business in my life. I've lived for 50 years in which he has not lived one day beyond that. He died on this beach and I wanted to, I'd never been to the American cemetery in France and I wanted to go and say my goodbyes to him and find him. And I finally found him. And I, this was a great, you know, release point for me to just bond with him and what my life has become and what his life wasn't in in, in sacrificing for his country. So that was like a very powerful experience that I had, even though it never made air, we didn't have a camera crew. We had, we had to do it or anything, but I, I just went and I said, my God, you know, I've been just so, so privileged to have this kind of experiences in my life. Mm-hmm. I'm like a, nobody really. I mean, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a household name. People don't know my name for the most part. They do know from my bylines with some of the reporting I did over the last couple of years. But really, you know, I've been blessed uh, in terms of um, the opportunities that I've had. Mm-hmm. So. You're a person of Jewish faith, and you, you spoke about that. And I don't find a whole lot of people who are, are Jewish who are in the conservative camp. So right. how did you get there? Well, first of all, uh, I was a very young uh, left-wing activist. I actually was in a study group, which was called a Marxist-Leninist Mao Zedong study group. I was an anti-war uh, radical. I actually had as a roommate during those days uh, one of the defendants of the Chicago 7 trial, which was mm. an infamous trial that followed the riots at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. His name was Rennie Davis. He was one of of uh, really eight defendants. Um, uh, and one of the uh, one of the defendants um, was removed from the from the case. But in any event, I lived with him and I met all sorts of other left-wing people. I met Tom Hayden. I met Jane Fonda. I uh, met William Kunstler, the big left-wing uh, lawyer. But but I wasn't un-American. And a lot of the left, even then, were very un-American. They were ashamed of their country and they were ashamed of what they did in the war in Vietnam. And I was a very big activist in the, in the war. I As a student, I was on the national board of directors of a thing called the People's Coalition for Peace and Justice. I never really was ashamed of my country. I actually was proud of it, but I thought Vietnam was a mistake. Mm -hmm. Not my friends. They felt that America was inherently wrong, unjust, criminal, uh, founded, supported a, a immoral economic system called capitalism. And I sort of I sort of like drank a little bit of the Kool-Aid and sort of agreed with some of it until at the Republican National Nominating Convention, Gene Kirkpatrick, who was then uh, a Democrat, gave a speech called the Blame America Crowd, in which she said that anything that happens in the world, there's this crowd of left-wingers who will always blame America. It doesn't even matter if whether or not we really played a role in it, they would always find a way to blame us. And as this speech, which was a brilliant speech, was unfolding, I began to recognize that I had uh, really been drinking this Kool-Aid and that this is not me, that I am a very patriotic American. We have a wonderful society. We have one of the, well, the oldest functioning democracy, but also there's just so many different uh, opportunities in this society. This is not the kind of country that I felt the left, that the left had personified. and so. I was sort of troubled by that. And um, then when I got to ABC, when you call up and you say to anybody, I'm from ABC, can I talk to you? Can do an interview, phone interview, whatever, meet you. Everybody accepts it, everybody, of one, no matter what the, the persuasion. And mm-hmm. over because it's ABC. <laughs> that's right. Many years later, and now I'm at ABC, and I'm, I'm talking to a lot of conservatives, and I find that conservatives, for the most part, had a much more modern and up-to-date critique of where we were in American society than my friends on the left. Um, my friends on the left were still steeped in the New Deal. 
kind of interesting that they've now raised it to Green New Deal. And also Johnson's, you know, um, war on poverty and that these were all the successes when in fact all the objective criteria is that many of these federal programs have failed and actually created a, and some people, you know, uh, a feeling of dependency rather than, a, you know, getting you on your feet so you can be independent and have a good full life for yourself and your family. So over time, I began to really I get into this. And then I, I was invited to be a senior producer at Fox News Sunday with Tony Snow. I accepted it. And I, I this was when Fox News uh, channel was really being created. And this was the we were creating together the Washington Bureau. Mm-hmm. And all of these people from CNN, NBC, ABC, CBS, who were, you know, we all knew each other. We didn't realize that we were conservative. And we would point at you like, you? You're here? You're here? And it's like a smile. on Oh, my God, I had no idea. So a lot of conservative producers, I was a producer, uh, and reporters began to migrate to Fox News. And then after Fox, uh, I was asked by the Cato Institute, which is a libertarian think tank, if I would be their senior vice president for communications. And I said, okay. So I did that. And there I learned a lot. That was like a college graduate level stint for me. I was there for four years. And uh, that's where I began to learn about free market economics and uh, free market uh, ideas and how they were so different than the command and control government wants to go and control your whole life thing of of the left. That was my final, final intellectual uh, break from the issue of um, liberalism versus conservatism. And there are probably, there's now, there's probably a third of Jewish Americans who are conservative. Mm -hmm. But still, that means that you have 60%, two thirds, uh, who are very much liberals. And it it is still a liberal community. And uh, we are a distinct minority within the Jewish community to to be conservative and Jewish. It's, It's not... You know, we're we're like a minority within a minority. So, does that bring some conflict within your your groups that you hang with? Well, uh, it means you have to keep your mouth shut sometimes <laughs> for family reunions or dinners and things of that sort. And that's also true. I think it's important. I I know that you're you're in Frederick, Maryland, out just outside D.C. For for those who are not inside D.C., D.C. is a very democratic city. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that ninety. 7% of the voting public in D.C. voted for Hillary Clinton. When George McGovern lost uh, to Richard Nixon in 1972, and F- Richard Nixon won 49 states, and the, dis- and, and, uh, and the only two states that McGovern c- carried was uh, Massachusetts and the District of Columbia. And it, it, so it's not just even a Jewish thing. Being conservative in a really very blue area is difficult for for all conservatives that that stick it out here right right and and it's you know in Maryland as well i mean we're we have the unique uh stance of ha- being a blue state with a republican governor right now who's very popular but uh you know we often say you know we're we're conservative i'm actually registered independent but i typically vote on the conservative side and we often say that, you know, when it comes to national elections, our vote really doesn't count because we have Montgomery County, PG County, Baltimore, all those areas that really carry the the bulk of the of the votes in, in our state. Well, it's funny you say that because I am currently registered as a Democrat in D.C. <laughs> and the reason why I am is because we have a primary system where only Democrats can vote for Democrats and only Republicans can vote for Republicans right. in the primary. Right. So the, the, the Republicans never win, and you cannot cross over and vote in a Democratic primary if you're Republican. Now, in Virginia, for example, they have an open uh, system where Republicans can vote in primaries for Democrats mm-hmm. and Democrats can vote in primaries for Republicans. You're, you registered so you can go and support any primary candidate that you want. That the, But here you are totally disenfranchised. And the Republican Party, I sad to say, is really kind of a broken uh, machine here in, in D.C. So if you the only vote that counts is who wins the primary. If the primary there's if the and they're all Democrats. So it'll be Democrats against Democrats here. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to have any input, 
you need to be a Democrat. I was an independent for two or three years, and then I couldn't vote in either the Republican or the Democratic primary. Yeah, that's what I face here. And so I'm kind of reconsidering that at this point. Yeah, because you're totally disenfranchised. And there, and most of the conservative states in this country have open primaries. And most of the blue states, not all, but most of the blue states have the situation you and I are facing, which is if you're an independent, you are disenfranchised. You can't vote in either the Republican or Democratic primary. It's crazy. So in your investigative reporting, what or how do you choose the topics or are those topics chosen for you as you go into uh, a particular story? I have been very blessed. Uh, I, I've worked in the last six, eight years for both the Washington Examiner and the Daily Caller. And in both of those cases, uh, I was the one who chose the story. So whatever interests me, I would go to my editor and they had to approve it, of course. But usually if I saw something that seemed weird, I would go to them and I say, I think this is weird. Can I go you know, dig into it? And they'd say, okay. So I wrote it awful lot, and I, I think a lot of people believe a lot of um, the groundbreaking uh, coverage of the Clinton Foundation mm-hmm. and of the um, of who gave them money and uh, how they were. Uh, they basically had no auditing capability whatsoever during the entire uh, time that they were uh, bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars, not only from the U.S. but from overseas interests, from Saudi princes, from all sorts of. Uh, tycoons and uh, autocrats. And it, I mean, it was just a lot of dirty money going in there. And then, of course, I also began getting into the uh, Clinton email problem where Hillary had this email server in the basement of her house in Chappaqua, New York, in which there was like no federal government oversight. It was an open system. Uh, it had the kind of like Norton antivirus that you and I might have had. Uh, at that time, except that all of her work, all her government secrets and classified information was going through that. I was the one who broke the story that the Chinese had hacked into her system and they were actually, they had created a malware into her uh, email server in which uh, a courtesy copy, a duplicate copy was produced exactly the moment that she received the original copy. And it was sent to this other entity which was a Chinese state-owned enterprise operating in the United States, and they sent it on to Beijing. So the entire four years that she was Secretary of State, China and many of my intelligence sources tell me that Russia was hacking and Nigeria was hacking it, the Israelis may have been hacking it, that she had like an open party line in which all sorts of foreign governments and, and hostile foreign actors were breaking into her server and finding out all this stuff about our diplomatic actions, our our military uh, uh, plans, appointments, treaties, you name it. That all was just an open book for a lot of the enemy states in this this world. And and she just sort of like, I mean, there's some discussion now whether or not she and her aides should be held accountable for this. But so far that she's not been held accountable. If, If you had been a low-level or mid-level um, government employee in a diplomatic or national security capacity, and you did what she did, uh, you would be fired, you'd sure. be disgraced, and you probably would be in, you know, in, in, in prison for a very long time. Right. So do you uh, live your life looking over your shoulder <laughs> and breaking all um, these stories? Yeah, you know, we all of us do. And um, I will tell you that I have uh, been a- awarded a... Uh, a license in the District of Columbia to uh, carry a concealed weapon. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, the, the week that I was uh, getting it from the D.C. Police Department, uh, Tucker Carlson also was awarded a, a concealed mm-hmm. carry license mm-hmm. too. And there are other conservatives that have done that. Um, I've never had to use it. I've never really gone around in the city with a loaded gun. Right. But I just want to know that if I need to, I can do it. Mm-hmm. And of course, I keep it at the house. I, I did, got a variety of different, you know, like all the, I've never gotten a serious threat mm-hmm. posed. There are lots of like, you know, really uh, nasty stuff. But thankfully, I, I've never really gotten the kind of um, stuff that other conservatives have faced. So you have to have pretty tough skin. You have to have pretty tough skin. You have to feel... You know, that this is really America where you can think about whatever you want to think, that uh, that our, our 
you know, you there are certain things that are regulated in terms of our actions, but in terms of our thoughts, we are still maybe precariously, but we are still a country that tries to honor uh, independent thought, and that we should be able to have it without any kinds of fears of repercussions or of people attacking you, which happens in other countries outside the United States. Now, that is changing because we're seeing lots of different conservative speakers, for example, on college campuses who are being booed down or who where they're canceled because they fear for the safety of these conservative speakers on America's college campuses. I mean, this is outrageous. It's crazy. That can happen in the United States of America. Right. It's like the one side doesn't you know, wants their voice to be heard, but, you know, God forbid you have the other side to come in to speak and to share their opinion. And the other thing is that it's also affecting the Jewish American community because there are overt anti-Semitic actions and comments and demonstrations erupting on a lot of colleges, including our Ivy League schools. In fact, I think our Ivy League schools are most permissive in allowing anti-Semitic speakers and advocates who are hate-filled toward Jews to be on those campuses. I find that to be completely amazing. Not only is this free speech uh, not honored, but on top of it, you have the resurrection of uh, hating the Jew, which was, you know, has been like something you thought that we eradicated here in the United States in the 20th century. But no, it's it's coming back. We even have uh, Representative Omar, who has said outrageous things in the on the wells of the Congress and the you know floors of the Congress, and just as and then when Nancy Pelosi tried to reprimand her, the Democratic left wing and Congressional Black Caucus and Women's Caucuses united to go and thwart it, and there was never any reprimand of Congresswoman Omar, and that's and and there, she's just getting more brazen with every you know mm-hmm. you know every week. And so, where do you think that that hatred or that bigotry is coming from? Well, I think some of it's coming from the hatred of Israel. The Palestinians have been very good at uh, portraying themselves as a third world victim. Mm-hmm. Uh, they consider Israel to be a colonial European outpost and part of imperialism, that it is anti-democratic, that it is that it is oppressing the Palestinian people. And the, the left has always been interested in just, you know, embracing any kind of oppressed people and, you know, quite frankly, it is totally an, an intellectual dead end uh, if you really want to have a real discussion about the Middle East and Israel. Remember, Israel is the only country, the only country in the entire Middle East that has regular elections. Mm. It is the only country that has a complete free press. It is the only country that allows demonstrations by anyone. It's the only country that allows Muslims, a non, a different Jewish and ethnic group, to be elected to the legislature and have. Um, and there's ten to twelve members of the of the Israeli uh, Arabs that are in the Knesset in their legislature as full members. There are members of the Israeli Arab community in the court system, including on their Supreme Court, the Supreme Court that our Israeli Arabs have been able to go before the court, petition it, and they've been able to overrule injustice when it's been determined by the, the their Supreme Court and their court system. This is a far cry from all the other corrupt and anti-democratic and totalitarian uh, societies that are that surround it. And to think that this country that has a rule of law is an oppressor and that mm. of, of the Palestinian people, you know, there's there's a, a polling that's done every month uh, by some very prominent polling companies. And in the Palestinian community, the last time that there was an election for uh, Abbas, who's the president, who was the president of, uh, and still is the president, the last time that Abbas uh, won an election was 2005, and then he's canceled every every scheduled election from 2005 to today. Mm-hmm. And have we heard anything from the European Union or from democratic-loving people about the fact that they have a dictator in which there's been no elections whatsoever? And when you go to the polling companies, they show that 82% of the Palestinians believe that Abbas, their leader, is undemocratic, is corrupt, and that they think that he's not worthy of being their president. And you know, we don't hear that mm-hmm. contrast between the the so-called regime in, that's governing the Pol- Palestinians 
and the Israeli government that has such robust debate in it. And yet, you know, people want to take the the Kool-Aid that because Europeans fled after the Holocaust, European Jews fled to Israel for safety purposes, that it is now a European outpost is ridiculous. It's a Jewish outpost for Jewish safety for people who had six million of their brethren who were killed right. in World War II and concentration camps and in other, you know, loathsome ways. So, mm-hmm. you know, really, you know, this is this is crazy for a Jew like myself to hear this and see how the 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 left has embraced itself with these anti-democratic Palestinians and and then tried to trot out this idea that they are oppressed and, and they are oppressed. They're oppressed by their own government. Uh, by the Palestinian Authority, but it's it's so weird how you know black is white and white is black when right. you start looking at a lot of the the, the sort of left wing philosophies and, and and points of view. Well, I mean, you and I could probably talk about this these kind of things all day. I have a couple more questions uh, in in you know on my page here. So what what are some of the big life lessons that you've learned along the way in the course of your career? Hmm. Well, I think that one of them is to follow your heart because I followed my heart and going into journalism and I, for a long time, I, I sort of repressed it. I think that if you have a dream, maybe you can't get it today, but figure out a way you can take that first step toward that dream. I think that that is probably the life lesson that I, that, I, that I've learned, you know, and it's a big one. Yeah. Wow. And I think that is is such an important thing for anyone to know and understand that if you, you know, and, and I've kind of done that in, in what I'm doing. I've, I've, you know, when I first made my first documentary, it was an idea. It was just, you know, let's make a documentary about the wheat harvest. And it was like, how do I do that? Well, I kind of figured it out and went out and did it. And so I think what you said there is very, very true. It's good advice. So what are some of the books or... Uh, maybe podcasts, or who are some of the people that have most influenced you along the way? Well, I mean, it's not a podcast, but I worked for six years for Ralph Nader. And while a lot of people would say, well, how can you go and, you know, idolize that guy? Well, Ralph taught me a lot of skill sets. One of them was um, how to uh, how to take an idea and a problem and how to research it, which is my investigative reporting side, and then how to use that for social change uh, in terms of righting wrongs. And so I learned that. But the other thing about Nader, which, you know, there's two parts to Nader's critique. The first is how unresponsive government is to the American people. And in the 1970s and 80s, when I was with him, that was very much the case as it is today, how, how government bureaucracies uh, favor special interests, how they, um, the little guy, the little man and woman are completely axed out of the uh, policymaking that would be, benefit them in terms of Congress or in terms of the administration departments and agencies. So that's like a whole critique that he taught me, and I think it's true today. So I really, I really benefited, you know, working sort of at his knee and, uh, and learning that where Ralph and I disagree is that he thinks that the solution is more government. And I think the solution is less government. Mm. So when the movie about your life is made and I'd be happy to produce that, what will the log line be? You know, a log line in a movie is that one sentence description that tells the story in, in one phrase or sentence. So when the movie of your life is made, what would that log line say? Well, actually, it was a friend of mine who is um, a uh, editor in chief of another publication who threw the line out, and I think it's probably right because this year, nineteen, I came here in nineteen sixty nine for college, and now it's two thousand nineteen. And he just said spontaneously, "What a, it shows you what a creative genius he is." He said, 50 years living in the swamp." <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I mean, I've I've seen so much of the swamp. I didn't know that was the word that one should put to it, but I've seen so much wrongdoing, self-serving, selfish actions, actions that help uh, narrow political groups, but not the broad uh, American uh, public. 
I've seen so much of this, the, 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 the um, revolving door where uh, members of Congress go and join lobbying firms and then they get, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year big, big, in big contracts and uh, they're now lobbying their friends. And, you know, this is done by Republicans and Democrats, by the way, not this is just not a Democratic sure. problem. Yeah. And I didn't understand all of that stuff at the time. I saw it, but I didn't put it together. And I think that 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 this this swamp probably is a apt uh, description. Mm-hmm. It, so who's someone who maybe on the surface you had one idea about them, but when you met them, interviewed them, they surprised you? Huh. Oh, that's an interesting question. I, I who do. Did I meet that surprised me? I mean, there. Well, I'll tell you one person that surprised me. Yes. So one of the things that I would do as a field producer for Good Morning America is when we had a very senior person, uh, certainly the president of the United States on our show, or senator, or congressman, a secretary, or cabinet member, uh, or other important pieces, even actors and actresses that were going to be on. I usually accompanied them, and I got them set, and I, you know, I. I got, made sure that they were at the right place, and that the, the and I would set the the the, the shooting uh, uh, for uh, what the shot would look like, etc. So, one year, it was very early in the morning, and um, we were going to have on uh, Senator Robert Dole, and we were going to have Senator George Mitchell. And Robert Dole is a Republican; he actually once ran for president uh, under the Republican ticket. And Senator George Mitchell was at the time the Senate, the head of the of the of the U.S. Senate, and was a Democrat. He was a leading Democrat in the Senate. So you know, our notion was that you know George Mitchell was like a fatherly, thoughtful person, and that Bob Dole was a person who uh, was you know a Republican, venal, uh, didn't have good values or anything of that sort. So the two of them come up because we're going to have them on together. And we were not the only ones doing the show. The Today Show was going to do an interview, and CBS This Morning was going to do an interview. So we were all, all of our um, our, our cameras were set up, and we all had a, um, and we had quite a few people there. And George Mitchell shows up late, and he's gruff, and he's really very rude. But beforehand comes Senator Dole. Now a lot of people don't know that Senator Dole in World War II lost the use of his arm. Mm-hmm. It hangs really listlessly by his side, and it's one of the reasons why he was actually one of the uh, people advancing Americans, the Americans for Disability Act. Well, with his good arm, he had in him, which he carried, not an aide, uh, a big jug of, um, of coffee hmm. and, some, and a bag of muffins for the crew, oh, for wow. all of us. Wow. And, and he's carrying it. He's a disabled person, but in his one useful arm, he's carrying both of them. The aides are falling behind, but they're not carrying it, which you think they would do. He carried it in person, gave it to all of us. He person gave it to me. And he was charming, and he was humble, and he was a nice guy. He's the kind of guy you'd like maybe have beer with or something. Right. And, that, and it just totally flipped their public images in the liberal Washington press. Hmm. you know. And so I found this guy, Bob Dole to be a sweet, generous, thoughtful, caring person who had a wicked sense of humor. He was very funny, mm. uh, also self-deprecating humor. And here was George Mitchell, who everybody loved, and he was just really this rude SOB. And it was just really, you know, had a prima donna kind of portrayal of, of, of himself. And so yeah. that uh, meeting, and then I, I interviewed Bob Dole a number of other times, including in his apartment with his wife, Elizabeth Dole. We did like a little day in the life of, uh, of Bob Dole. And he was like that the same way. So, and, and by the way, uh, Jerry Ford, who I mentioned in the very beginning, uh, calling himself, I interviewed Ford a number of other times, and he was just also a down to earth kind of guy. So, mm-hmm. both of those people have been vilified by our liberal press. Mm-hmm. Of course, when they die, they're going to say they're saints, but before that, they're all, you know, terrible, mm-hmm. uh, heartless, senseless people. And yet, when you when I met them, I was just so shocked about how different they were in real life. You know, it's good to to meet people like that who who surprise you, and it's always a refreshing thing. It's also disappointing sometimes when you, when someone's been put on a pedestal and and admired, and they come off in a totally different way as well. Yeah, so. uh, and uh, one person who 
well, I won't go down that road, but yes, there are people also on the other side that you just sort of, you admire and then you read, you meet them and you realize, you know, just what a phony they really are. So final question, what's the next big thing for you? Well, it's very interesting. I'm probably going to continue my investigative reporting, but I'm also, and I don't know if this is going to happen, but I've been invited to actually be part of a startup that's going to be a new magic show and circus combined that will use high technology and will be sort of like Cirque du Soleil, but will um, will be different in many, many ways. It'll have live animals, but they'll also have magic and they'll have all sorts of, and they'll have a story theme for each of them. And so I, I've been invited to be part of the team. I have accepted. The other thing though, that uh, I'm going to be really working on, I think, and I'll be writing a lot, it will be about anti-Semitism and also the hatred that the left, but other people, including some on the right, who hate Israel for some reason, mm. you know, and they all have their excuses, but, you know, they had their excuses uh, in 1492 when uh, the Spanish Inquisition came by and all the Jews were either expelled or they were required to believe another another uh, religion or mm. during World War II. I mean, each group had a their own particular explanation about why we should hate Jews and why Jews are evil. And it's just part of the ancient animus that people have had toward this small little group of people. I mean, we were very small, maybe one or two percent of the world's population, maybe probably one percent is probably better. Yet we've had, I think, a very positive impact on creating just societies. And yet we're vilified left and right by many people. Yeah. Well, Richard, it's been a pleasure to have you on the program. I've always enjoyed getting together with you and talking with you. So any predictions on the upcoming presidential race? Well, I think that given the um, drumbeat of the media, you know, one would be against Donald Trump. One would be thinking that Trump was, you know, toast, that he was – He's a one-term president, and there's a lot of atmospherics that are against him for sure, a lot of um, really terrible stuff being thrown at him by his opponents. So in a way, in a a neutral environment, I would say that a Democrat could probably waltz in. But the Democrats have decided not to just simply uh, oppose Trump, but to now go into this complete left-wing jihad of uh, the new the Green New Deal about free college and free this and free that and about reparations and about supporting LBGTQ uh, even in um, uh, educational classrooms for youngsters I mean you name it and they're going way off into the deep end of left wing uh, fantasies. And it makes them feel really good to all just sort of say, yes, we're socialists. Yes, we're this and that. But I think that in light of these developments, what could have been a close election actually will be a landslide and that Donald Trump will win a landslide. He may not win the 49 states, but he will win a huge number of states from coast to coast. Uh, Much bigger, I think, um, win than he had against Hillary Clinton. There is a saying that a diplomat made of um, of another political situation, and but I'm going to use it, and that is the Democrats never fail to miss an opportunity. They will always, you know, when they're given an opportunity, they will blow it. I think they're blowing it. I yeah. think that they're also blowing it. And the one guy who po- probably could really give him the run for his money, Joe Biden, is being absolutely torn up to bits by the Democrats. And remember, this is the same Democrats that said, we have a promise, an oath that we will not attack each other. Mm-hmm. Well, that didn't last long, did yeah, it? I guess not. So, so I think well, that if things continue the way that they are going, they are, they, the trajectory that they're, they're pursuing right now, I think that Donald Trump will very handsomely get a second uh, term. Well, there you go. We'll have to come back after the election in a couple of years and uh, do a follow up with you. Get some reflections. Richard, thank you so much for joining us on the My Story podcast. I really appreciate it. You you always have fascinating stories and always uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. Uh, You are a very talented guy and uh, I I admire the work that you do. You're, You're just a great guy, Conrad. 
Richard, thanks so much for spending time with us today. It's always a pleasure talking with you and hearing your stories. And I can't wait to catch up with you after the election to see uh, if your prediction came true. Next time on the My Story podcast, I'll have my friend and fellow filmmaker and musician Ingrid Serban. Ingrid is an accomplished musician and a voting member of the Grammy Awards. Yes, she votes for the Grammys. And she's an accomplished filmmaker to boot. Her new documentary film, Free Trip to Egypt, which she directed, premiered a few weeks ago in New York and L.A., and she's in post-production on another film that will come out likely next year. So please join me next time for this interview with Ingrid Serban as we talk about creativity, following our passion, and a lot more. That's next time on the My Story Podcast. The My Story Podcast is produced by Kanjo Studios, an award-winning video production company whose focus is helping you tell your story. Visit kanjostudios.com, click on the blue Get a Quote button, and let them know what you need. Then watch your stress melt away as their team does the magic of producing your next video, film, or podcast project. That's kanjostudios.com, telling stories that matter. And if you enjoy the music on today's show, it's from my friend Drew Davidson. You can get all of his music on iTunes or Spotify or at drewdavidson.com. Last, if you have an idea for an interview you want to hear, send me a message and I'll see what I can do. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you again next week on the My Story Podcast.